Shalom and welcome again to this week's edition of Secrets of Meaning, the podcast and TV arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address. Thank you very, very much for joining us. As you know, we want to explore issues uh, on the impact of longevity on our families, our community, and our own lives. Feel free to visit us at the website, jewishsacredaging.com. And if you want to contact me for suggestions or comments on these shows, please email me at rabbiaddress at jewishsacredaging.com. And we are pleased to welcome as our sponsor for the uh, Seekers of Meaning today, the Rothkopf Elder Law Firm, which provides a full range of assistance to individuals and families in the area of elder law. You can contact them at rothkopflaw.com or at 877-475-1101. And speaking of Rothkopf Law, it is a great pleasure to welcome uh, Chelsea Duckers to our Seekers of Meaning podcast and TV show today. Chelsea is at Rothkopf, full disclosure, and she is an elder care coordinator and end-of-life doula. Two issues that really have emerged in the last couple of years is something that's very, very important. We get asked about this a lot when we go out and do workshops and situ and, and, and programs around end of life. So we figure, you know something? Let's talk about this. Chelsea, welcome. Welcome to Secrets of Meaning. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me today. Oh, our pleasure. So an elder care coordinator, uh, why don't you just define that what what is an elder care coordinator an elder care coordinator like you said i work with rothkoff law group and our focus is um on what's called life care planning the type of law that we do um so it's not necessarily what you think of when you think of an elder attorney um a lot of times that has to do with estate planning doing documents um so we do those things but so much more so we really focus on the care side of things. And that's where the care coordinators come in. We have six geriatric care coordinators. Uh, most of us have a social work background, have worked in either long-term care or some aspect of long-term care. And we meet the clients where they're at, whether that be at home, in the hospital, at rehab, uh, assess what their needs are. And based on what their needs are and what their goals are, we help them connect with the most appropriate resources. So whether that be moving to assisted living, getting care in the home, looking for a nursing facility, whatever the case may be, we help connect them with those resources and help them navigate the healthcare system. Um, and then the care needs really drive the financial planning. So that's how we differ from what you would, you know, consider like an estate planning attorney or something like that. I, I got to ask you, um, what what drew you to this? What? Sure. You know, was there an aha moment sometime? You know, you were stuck on the expressway and you said, wow, you know, what do I want to do? And because what, what was the motivation? Why did you get into this? To make a very long story short, I went to school what feels like a million years ago for social work. Uh, I knew I always <laughs> wanted to help people. I wasn't sure in what capacity. So I went to Stock what's now Stockton University at the time it was Stockton College. Um, but I was, like I said, studying social work and I needed to do a junior and a senior year internship. Um, so while planning for that, we had to fill out paperwork with preferences and things that we absolutely didn't want to do. So while I was filling out that paperwork underneath the absolutely don't want, I said I did not want to work with older people and I did not want to be in a hospital-like setting. 
And I was actually placed in an acute rehab called Betty Backrack down in Galloway, (laughs) which was with older people in a hospital like setting. Um, I ended up really liking it. And then for my senior year, I wanted to do the same thing. I, it didn't end up working out because my instructor unfortunately had to go out on medical leave, but I was placed then in a long-term care subacute facility, which is a nursing home with subacute rehab. And I had a very hard time in the beginning doing that. I had a very hard time connecting with my clients. Um, I had an easier time with, with the rehab because that's what I had done before. But I was lucky enough to have two very good mentors at the time to help me figure out why I was so uncomfortable and why I was having such a hard time. And I think the problem was I had never really dealt with individuals with dementia before. And, and obviously in a nursing home, a lot of people pass away. And I had a very hard time navigating people who were dying. Um, and once I realized that and realized how I could learn so much from them and just because they were older with dementia or they were older and dying, it didn't take away from the life they were still living and I could still do a lot for them and learn a lot from them. Once I was able to do that and kind of face my own fears of death, I realized that this was the type of population I wanted to work with. So I was there for a few years and then I worked at another long-term care subacute facility in Cherry Hill for a few years. And that's when I became acquainted with Rob Paul. Um, I absolutely loved the idea of having someone to really advocate for seniors Uh, especially in those types of settings, because it's hard. I mean, of course, at the end of the day, assisted living and a nursing facility, they are a business. So you're torn a little bit as a social worker in a building. You do have to understand the business side of things and think of that while also trying very hard to advocate for your residents there. And that's what drew me to Rockhoff because our business isn't successful unless our clients are getting what they need. So I felt like I didn't have that that uh, inner struggle, that ethical struggle anymore. So I joined the firm four years ago, and I've I've been loving it. I mean, it's a it's a great resource to our clients. Um, being able to truly advocate for people, it's what I've always wanted to do. So the lesson really is, as for those of people who may watch this in undergraduate school, never say never. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> because here you are. Because here you are a couple of years later doing really very, very, very sacred work. Um, and the, it's interesting that you mentioned that the lessons that you've learned working with people in the situations in which you're working families and individuals. Could you, um, you know, as a clergy person, the stories, the individual stories of people are so fascinating. Uh, and the work that you do. I'm sure you come across some similar types of situations. Um, and this is a tough question. Could you, what's the, what's the one thing that I think, what's the one thing you've learned from working with this population? One big takeaway that I try to remember every day and change a little bit is that I think, unfortunately, as a society, we, we do a disservice to our, older population. And I think with, um, with bringing light to that, 
And with talking about dementia, talking about death, talking about those hard things, people want to avoid those taboo topics. We can start to do a little bit better as a society and as a culture in the United States with, with just doing better for our older adults. I think a big part of why we, I think a big part of why um, I feel that way is we're just afraid. We're afraid of getting older. We live in a society that pushes, pushes being young. Um, with, with thinking about this podcast coming up last night, my husband and I were watching TV and I felt like every commercial was how to look young, how to feel young. Don't talk about your age. And you know, you hear all of this, um, don't ask a woman what her age is, or I don't, I don't know if you've seen these things, these are, that are becoming very popular, but, um, I'm 31 now. And a lot of my friends, when they turned 30 had like a death of their twenties party where it was almost like a funeral where it's oh just God. so it's looked at so negatively to get older. Wait till they hit 50. Yeah. Wait till they hit 50. Well, and it's so funny because age is so relative because, you know, I'm like I said, I'm 31, but I have a brother and sister who are a lot younger than me. And to them, I'm old. I'm like an adult and I have a baby and they're like, Oh, you're old. You don't, you don't know anything anymore. But then I don't feel old and I look at my clients and they're, you know, a lot of them, they don't consider themselves old. I can't tell you how many clients I have that are like, ah, I'm in this assisted living. These are all old people. I have nothing in common with them. So it's all relative. Right. (laughs) It is. It's a a very, yes, you're right about the commercials and it's a very valuable lesson to learn about. And and the fear stuff is really very... that's really part of the spiritual aspect of what we do, you know, in my work. But there is a spiritual component about the fear, and it's a long story, not for right now, but you are, you are correct. What, what are some of the most frequently asked questions when you're dealing with a family as elder care coordinator? Uh, can you just off the top of your head, what, what are the top two or three that you always know that you're going to get asked? Um, of course, it, it depends on the situation and what their goals are. Um, but I think a lot of questions that we get have to do with, uh, there's a lot of questions, of course, around facilities, like looking into assisted living or nursing facilities. Um, and you always get these questions of, you know, what's, what's the best one? I want the best one. Um, and unfortunately, I think we're, it's a it's a hard truth when you have to explain that the healthcare system is very broken and a lot of facilities are still struggling, especially after the pandemic. I mean, they were struggling beforehand. Um, and then there's a lot of questions around, uh, definitely surrounding death and what happens um, with hospice. There's a lot of questions about hospice. I don't think we as a country educate a lot on hospice. Uh, I don't think that doctors talk about it a lot. I think there's a lot of fear around the idea of hospice. Um, But I think a lot of it depends on what their goals are and what the situation is. Are you finding in your work, because the the economics, and I'm going to come back to this a little bit, but the, the disparity in just the cost that just say when you, when you work with a client, is going to go into assisted living. Uh, where 
recording this in, in, in southern New Jersey outside of Philadelphia. So this is the area in which we uh, um, are most knowledgeable of. But there's such a disparity in cost, or is there such a disparity from just the cost per month of the various types of facilities? Could you just talk a little bit about that and how you guide a family who say, I want the best, but you say, well, the best may cost you $10,000 a month? Yes. And uh, that is an accurate number, depending on what you're looking for. I mean, of course, a nursing facility is going to cost the most because that is 24-7 care. Um, they have a much larger staffing ratio than assisted livings because it's anticipated that someone who's in a nursing facility needs assistance with a lot of activities of daily living. Uh, depending on the facility, though, and this is this is just the reality, um, buildings can come up with their own pricing. So it's not a universal price for, for long-term care, but sometimes, especially for the nicer facilities, you can see you can see it be anywhere from between $400 to $500 a day. Um, for assisted living, that is all, that all depends on what the level of care is. So assessments are done because even though the, the name or the term that's used assisted living, there's still the anticipation there's some independence there. Um, so that can be anywhere, depending on how much assistance is needed, that can be anywhere from $5,000 to $10,000 a month, depending on also if somebody's in memory care. Memory care tends to be more expensive. And again, for the same reason that uh, there's a higher staffing ratio because they need more assistance. So yes, it is very expensive. Um, and it, it it's difficult. And when somebody is out of money, uh, of course, there are things you can apply for, like like Medicaid. Medicaid is through, it's through the state. You're able to apply and it is considered long-term care insurance. So it does provide reimbursement for assisted living and nursing facilities. Um, there's also things out there like long-term care insurance that will sometimes cover some costs to long-term care. It just depends on each policy. Um, but even, you know, a lot of people go into these facilities thinking, well, I'll just spend the money down and apply for Medicaid. And if you've never gone through something like that before, it is a very difficult application process uh, with a very fractured system. So that's one of the main things that we're able to help our clients with is figuring out what, based on care costs, what's going to make the most sense, um, what benefits someone is eligible for, whether it's veterans benefits, they have long-term care insurance, um, and it, whatever insurance, their actual insurance like Medicare will cover. We kind of go through all of that with them and then figure out how they're going to pay for that care. If they can pay X amount of time when we have to apply for Medicaid and what that's going to look like for the family. So I, I think it's important for you to understand that this is, this can be a very complex and also time-consuming situation. And it's not just something, well, yes, we'll sit down with the elder care coordinator, we'll get all the information and we'll make a decision. This is, um, it's complex. And I know from the Medicaid thing, it can take, it's not something that happens in a month. It can take uh, several months Correct. from um, working with families who will just say, it's been five months, it's been six months and we're still waiting and we're having to write checks and uh, not everybody has long-term care insurance. 
I know that Rothkopf um, has prepared a book, as other places have. I'm going to be I'm going to be clear on that. From around the country, uh, this is the book that that you guys have done a life care plan, um, helping to navigate the aging journey. How how important in your experience is it for a family? Um, the the answer is probably obvious, but just talk to me a little bit. When you when you come up with a family who's actually done their homework and they've actually sit da- sat down and delineated a care plan and areas of responsibility leading to uh, adva- uh, advanced care planning, etc. How important is that for everybody to do? I think planning is the most important thing you can do. Um, you know, we plan our whole lives. We plan for to. to have a baby like you plan for birth you plan for life you plan for college um you plan for a career you plan for retirement planning shouldn't stop once you get to that point um it's very important you also you never know when something's going to happen so it's always good to have documents in place but it's also just good to know as you're getting older what your options are because Medicaid right. does have a five-year look back where they will want bank statements for the last five years. Um, so it's not, not saying that people like shouldn't live their lives and, and spend their money, but it's just something to know. Um, Cause the more, you know, the more you can be prepared for what's going to happen. And it, it's tough because a lot of times we get families that come to us and they haven't planned. And now it's a crisis situation where mom or dad or whoever it might be, it was in the hospital and is in rehab and now can't go home. They had been living independently and now they don't know what to do. Um, so if you can start to get an idea about what somebody's wishes are or what finances are, I mean, a lot of struggles that our families have, um, and I can even speak from experience. I just helped my stepmother's family apply for Medicaid for my grandmother. And there were three bank accounts that her children didn't even know about. So then trying to contact banks um, and we're getting letters from Medicaid saying, you know, we need additional documentation from this bank. And we never knew she had an account there. It's, it's tough. Um, It is a struggle because of course, it's also that shift that you sometimes see as people age where children step into more of that caregiver role, which can be hard for parents who were the parent their whole lives. Um, It can create some tension, but if those conversations are had beforehand, it won't be as difficult in a time of crisis or when something is happening that they need assistance with. Yeah. I I think the point that you make that, you know, we plan for everything. We plan for vacations and weddings and this, that, and the other thing. We just don't plan for the end. And so thank you for that. Um, we're going to be back with uh, Chelsea Dockers, who is an elder care coordinator and an end-of-life doula. I'm going to be back because I want to ask you about the end-of-life doula thing, because this is something that's also becoming very, very interesting and more well-known. And we'll be back with Chelsea right after this message from our sponsor from Rothkopf. We are health care advocates to help navigate the issues associated with the aging process, to access benefits that are available for those individuals. 
Rothkopf Law Offices helped us with my mother's home. We didn't know that we had to put it in my mother's name in order to save the home. Everything that he said is true. I mean, I've had, we've had so many questions, and it didn't matter when I call, everybody is always there. In one word, it's been incredible. And the expectations going in, because we didn't know what we were going to be involved with, what we, the situation, how we were going to deal with any of these items, the expertise, the service, and implementation of the plan has been totally critical to the success that we've experienced. A group who understands how important the care is is paramount. I would highly recommend that anyone look at their website, review the information, look at their client experiences. We've been very satisfied with everything from start to finish. So we're back with Chelsea Duckers, the elder care coordinator and end of life doula. Chelsea, I, I, I want to explore with you this end of life doula thing. Um, there's this explosion, you know, it's rabbinic hyperbole, but a, a a greater increase in awareness about uh, options at the end of life. And um, we're involved with a couple of organizations nationally that talk about this, uh, Kavod V'Nichum and some other SeaTac uh, out of Washington. But the end of life doula uh, is part of this uh, increased awareness around deaf education and accompanying, which in our tradition, the accompanying of someone to the end is, is a mitzvah. It's a, it's a, one of the obligations which we're supposed to do. Talk to me about what is an end-of-life doula. Thank you for bringing this up. I, it's weird to say, but talking about death is one of my favorite topics right now. I like talking about it, and um, it's. I'm hoping that talking about it more is going to normalize that. Um, so an end-of-life doula is actually can be considered very similar to a birthing doula. So anyone who's familiar with what a birthing doula is, it's a person who creates a relationship with someone who is pregnant, um, goes through that pregnancy journey with them, talks out different emotions, fears, helps them plan for the birth, um, talk through different options with that, because just like end of life, obviously, birth plans don't always go according to what we planned, exactly what we wanted. Um, so going over what different options look like, being there for the birth, and then helping the mother with some postpartum tasks, such as caring for the child, and again, working through some emotions that can come up with that. So on the other end of the spectrum, an end-of-life doula is an individual who can create a relationship with somebody who has received a terminal diagnosis, help them through that journey however they want that journey to look, help them deal with any um, unresolved feelings, fears, regrets, shame, um, help them help facilitate co uh, conversations with loved ones, uh, ultimately come up with a plan, which is usually referred to as a vigil plan, um, depending on what the family wants. If they want the doula there at the actual end of life, they can sit vigil with the family and help them through that process. And then they would help the family and the, or the loved ones. I'm sorry, I say family, but, you know, family is what you make it. So that's a, a loose term. Um, help the loved ones after the person has died deal with some of the grief and reprocess what the whole journey was with the end of life doula. So this is not something that you just wake up one morning and say, I think I'd like to do this. It's obvious, 
you you obviously this is a very very a powerful emotional i would imagine a lot of transference issues what how did you get trained for this where sure. did, Sure. Um, So I was already working with Rothkopf when I first even heard the term end of life doula. Um, It was during the pandemic. We, we, as a firm, two different, two separate end of life doulas had approached us to kind of explain what it was um, and just to educate us in case it was appropriate for any of our clients. I think the first end of life doula we met with, it just was so new and we didn't I at least did not fully understand what the role was. Um, The second doula that we met with was also a hospice social worker. And I think she just explained things in a little bit more of like a clinical way that I could resonate with. Um, But she started to talk about this role of helping, like taking a step further at end of life and helping somebody through that journey. And it just really interests me. Um, And at the same time, around the same time, I found this book called From Here to Eternity by Caitlin Dowdy. Um, She's very big in the green burial movement. If you have seen any articles or any videos about human composting, it was probably one of hers. She's a huge advocate for that. She She is a mortician from California, and she wrote a book about traveling the world and exploring death culture in different places. And between reading that and looking into INELDA, which is the International End of Life Doula Association, that was the organization that that second doula had trained with and ultimately I trained with, um, I I realized that that was something I think I'd been missing um, with with just in general being a social worker and with my role with Rothkopf. Um, we, We can help so we can help people to a certain point. And then it kind of got to end of life. And of course, we'd refer out to hospice. And I just wish there was a little bit more that we could do, especially during the pandemic when so many people were dying alone. And it was a really scary time for a lot of people. They didn't have uh, a lot of support. They didn't have family around them. And I just, it made me want to be able to do more and do better for the people we serve. So I I looked up the course. um, I brought it to... Jerry Rothkoff and the managing attorney on the Pennsylvania side, Brian Adler. And I just remember them being like, what, what is this? Um, and ultimately they said, sure, you want to go through this training? Go ahead. Because it was during the pandemic, it was virtual. It was about two months. It was three days a week. So it was two evenings for like three hours. And then it was one of, it was, I believe Sunday all day. So it was kind of like almost like a college course for for two months. And it was such an amazing experience. Because it was offered virtually, we had people from all over the world that were on this course. It was incredible. Uh, We did a lot of breakout discussions. We did a lot of um, one-on-ones doing kind of practicing in the role, doing a little bit of role play. And the person who I ended up getting paired up with the most was a woman from Russia. So half the time she was on, she was doing these role plays with me. It was like three in the morning for her in the afternoon for me. And it was so interesting to get different perspectives from somebody, you know, a totally different world, really. We talked, one of the most interesting conversations I had with her was actually about religion. 
and spirituality um, because I was raised Catholic. Um, I was Irish Catholic, so full of that that Catholic guilt my whole life. Um, and she wasn't really able to have a religion until she was older because of the way their country is. So it was a very interesting experience. Um, we, like I said, we did a lot of role play. So you had to put yourself in the position of either being the end of life doula or the dying person. And I think the instructors did such an amazing job with really getting you in the mindset of how would you feel if you were dying? Because it's hard to relate to somebody when you haven't gone through the same experience. So it was a very emotional experience. I mean, throughout the the weeks that we did this, it was a lot of emotions, a lot of tears, a lot of laughter. But I think it also was a really profound experience for me personally, because I was six months pregnant at the time. So it changed a lot of how I looked at death, especially having a living being growing inside of me. So I was very lucky to take the course when I did, because I think ultimately creating a healthier relationship with talking about death and with thinking about death has changed how I look at my life, has changed how I look at my daughter's life and how we just interact with each other. So it was an amazing experience. Um, I obviously, like I said, took the course when I was six months pregnant. Uh, so my daughter was born three weeks early, kind of caught us off guard. So I was out on maternity leave for a while. Once I came back and kind of got myself situated again, I went to Jerry and Brian and I said, we really need to figure out how we're going to do this because this is important. So since then, we've been trying to figure out how we can incorporate this role within our firm. So it's offered to all of our clients. So I, I have to ask you this question. Um, and I think the insight that you're gaining that in discussing death allows you to have a greater appreciation of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, we live in the New, we live in the state of New Jersey, and there are people who may be watching or listening to this from all over North America and some in either parts of the world. So New Jersey in the United States is, as you know, is one of the ten jurisdictions that have legalized medical aid in dying. So you personally, it's interesting, raised Catholic and the Catholic bishops lobbied against this, uh, in, in New Jersey. Um, what's you, what's your, as a, now as a, as an elder care coordinator who deals with this every day with families, as a trained doula, end of life doula, where do you, where do you come down on this? Pers- personally, I'm not asking you to represent a firm or anything. I'm just, just you, Chelsea. So, like I said, I, I was raised Catholic. I think, and this is, of course, just me, I think there's pros and cons to teachings of every religion. Um, I don't think that, I to- as I got older, I think I don't totally agree with every single thing that I learned when I was younger and growing up. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of amazing teachings and a lot of great things you can learn from any religion. Um, that, that being said, I consider myself a little bit more spiritual now. Um, and I, I am very much for the medical aid in dying. I think that, um, I, I have not personally 
gone through that experience with anybody with a client or anything like that even though it is legal in new jersey it's so very hard to do you have to find doctors willing to do it there's a lot of criteria um but that is something that i hope we see be available to other other states um i just think it's some i think it should be an option i mean who are we to tell somebody they're not allowed to die or die the way that they want to Especially if someone, because one of the criteria, of course, is for medical aid in dying, you have to have a terminal diagnosis. So if someone's already, when you receive a terminal diagnosis, you lose a lot of control in your life. That's one of the biggest things. That's one of the biggest losses is you've lost control or what it can be perceived as is you've lost control of the rest of your life for however long that is. And one of the main goals of an end of life doula is to give as much control back. That's why. We encourage planning. That's why we encourage all of this work because do it while you can and make this journey what you want it to be. And if that end result is going going through the medical aid and dying, I I think people should have that option. I think I think there's still some issues with medical aid and dying. Um, you have to be able to self administer. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of diagnosis where people can completely cognitively make that decision but if they're not able to administer the medication they can't do it so i i think it's good in theory i think there's still some kinks that could potentially be worked out with it um but i think there's also a big fear you know from from at least i know from a catholic and religious perspective um there's a big fear of it people don't necessarily want to have that option I, I just think if you already have this diagnosis, you should be able to do what you want with your life. Well, you know, it's interesting. We don't, this could be an entire conference <laughs> um, and, and, and is in many parts of the country. Uh, actually, uh, a couple of months ago, I just, I just was involved in one of these things. But e- even in our tradition, there is a difference of opinion. And obviously, the more liberal you go on the spectrum, the more accepting of options and autonomy and 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 personal autonomy mm-hmm. there are we've even we even published as part of our work a blessing uh that when you sign an advanced directive but which basically acknowledges the gratitude as you were alluding to that i have the ability to make these choices and that hope that my choices will be honored by my family uh in the event that i'm no longer able to make choices uh, because it is a spiritual, the, everything you're talking about it from, uh, you know, from the legal perspective does have significant spiritual components. Uh, and I, I think what you've talked about and how you've learned this from your own training and experience is one of the great gifts that you no doubt give your clients. Uh, so, um, I think that's, that's wonderful. So I, I, I really appreciate this. I really appreciate your, your coming on and explaining to us, especially the, not only end of life doula stuff, but the the coordinator stuff. There's so much to learn. For example, just one more thing. I'm sure you get involved, and and there may be some people who are listening to this who say, "Well, my mom is in Boca Raton or Scottsdale, but I have to move her back to our area." This reverse migration. Mm-hmm. You also, as a coordinator, get involved with that, don't you? Yes, correct. We have a lot of people. 
we have a lot of people either either moving from out of state back here or they're here and their children are out of state. So we kind of deal with both sides of that where, um, you know, moving people back is always a little more challenging. It's doable. It takes a little bit more. But yes, I've had many clients we moved here. Um, And then, like I said, we've had a lot of people that are here and they're alone. So their families will hire us because we are doing routine visits. We are doing routine check-ins. We're in constant contact with facilities that they're located at. And then we're reporting out. And I think that that's comforting, especially for people who live out of state because, you know, the facilities are, are great, but they're busy. They have a lot of people. Sometimes, you know, families don't get the certain response times that they're looking for, or they just want somebody who's an unbiased third person who's going in and they, you know, they know that they're going in and reporting what they're seeing or they're assisting with advocating for somebody. So, I mean, we just want to make sure our clients are getting the best care that is available to them and that families feel like they are in the loop with what's going on. Yeah, I think it's really important for people who may be listening to this and that that a, 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 a competent, really professional elder care firm like Rothkopf, if you're out of state, Every rabbi clergy person have had these conversations with members of the congregation. Who do I call? Mm-hmm. I can't get down to, you know, Fort Lauderdale every day. My mom or my dad is alone. That you will, you will make those visits and report back. That's really, really important for peace of mind. Um, that types of a community, because the loneliness factor, which is now exploding, um, goes a lot of different ways. Chelsea Duckers. Elder Care Coordinator, End of Life Doula. Thank you very, very much for sharing your journey. Uh, and um, this is uh, uh, really a, a very lovely conversation, and I thank you very much. Now tell me real fast before we run out of time, how's the baby? <laughs> she's good. She's uh, she's 16 months and just running the house. So. <laughs> oh, wait. Oh, wait. Wait. <laughs> The dog might not agree with me, but she's great. Yeah, you think she's running the house now? Wait. (laughs) Yes, we're we're very lucky. Um, Like I said, I think that one of the best things that ever happened to me was going through that course when I did because it's given me such a different perspective on this time when she's young. And my husband and I, I feel like we're able to really appreciate it. So, and so thank you for asking and thank you for having me. I appreciate these conversations. Great. Keep it up and, and, um, just stay safe and stay healthy and continue the, the work that you're doing. It's, it's sacred work. It, it, it really is. So to all of you, thank you very, very much again for joining us on today's edition of Seekers of Meaning, the podcast and TV arm of the Jewish Sacred Aging. Again, we want to thank our sponsor, the Rothkopf Elder Firm here in Southern New Jersey and also in Southeastern Pennsylvania. Uh, if you'd like to touch base with them again, rothkofflaw.com and the number is 877-475-1101. If you'd like to um, make a comment or a suggestion about future programs, just email me, Rabbi Address, at jewishsacredaging.com. If you go to the website, jewishsacredaging.com, and you'd like to make a tax-free donation to help support our work, just go to the donate button, click on it, and follow the easy uh, directions. 
Secrets of Meaning is produced at the Broadcast Center of Lubetka Media Companies here in beautiful southern New Jersey, Cherry Hill. And a big thank you to our producer, Steve Lubetkin. Again, thank you for joining us. I am your host, Rabbi Richard Address. I look forward to greeting you on our next Secrets of Meaning. In the meantime, stay safe, everybody. Stay healthy. Be kind to one another because we really need that right now. Take care and shalom.